Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. It's been a wild week, hasn't it? My goodness gracious. Uh, my name is Trey Dove, and I am the uh, spiritual formation pastor here at Hutto Bible Church. In case I haven't had the chance to meet you, welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here. Um, my wife, Kristen, and I were actually laughing this last week. Um, we stayed with, our, with my parents while our power was out, and we were laughing because two years ago, about two years ago, when Snowpocalypse, Snowvid, Snowmageddon, whatever you want to call it, I know there's a bunch of names, whatever you might call that. Well, when that happened, in the sovereignty and the providence of God, I was already scheduled to preach the following Sunday, and so I was like sermon prepping in my old bedroom, and it was hilarious. And then, of course, fast forward two years to this week when another ice storm hits, the sovereignty of God, uh, I was scheduled to preach again following that winter storm. And so I, you know, the first time I thought this was kind of crazy, after this week, I'm starting to think there's a pattern. And so you can write your emails to bobby at huddobible.com and just say, hey, listen, um, maybe Trey shouldn't preach in like January to March, like just those months. You, you handle it, okay? Because otherwise, we're going to keep doing this, and I'm just kidding. Well, maybe. So it's good to see you guys. Nonetheless, again, I'm, I'm thankful to be here, thankful uh, to have the privilege to preach the Word of God this morning. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, we are continuing in our series through the book of Daniel. We'll be in Daniel chapter 5. And if you've been to Hutto Bible Church before when I've preached in particular, you know that I tend to have way too much information and I tend to go way too fast. And so I'm going to do that again. I can't change who I am or how I'm wired, but I did give you fill in the blanks on the back of your notes. And so I took a page from the old Michael Hall playbook and thought that might be helpful. And so you're welcome. Yes. Thank you, Lord. So... With that, uh, while you are finding your place in Daniel 5, what I want to do is just remind us where we've been in the book of Daniel, help us catch up, and then orient us to where we are in chapter 5. And so with that, the book of Daniel is set after Babylon's first attack on Israel. And so after Babylon attacked Jerusalem, they took a a sort of first wave of exiles out of Jerusalem and into Babylon. And so among those exiles, you've got a young uh, Hebrew boy named Daniel, Uh, his friends as well. We've we've, uh, read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Them, among other Israelites, were taken out of Jerusalem into Babylon. And and the young among among them, the young Israelite boys and girls uh, were separated from their families and immediately subjected to Babylonian indoctrination. And so imagine the youth being ripped from their families as they enter in this new land, this foreign land where they are now exiles and they, I don't know what it was like, but imagine they step into a room and you've got your, you know, welcome to your new home orientation, right? Welcome to Babylon the Great. This is your new home. We are your new people. Our gods will be your gods. Our king will be your king. Our foods will be your food. And from this day forward, your names are no longer fill in the blank. Here is your new name. Welcome home, right? So Jerusalem had been plundered, the temple ransacked and robbed, and many, again, of the young Israelite children separated from their parents and force-fed an alternate story of reality. 
Now the book of Daniel then tells of Daniel and his friends and the exiles, their struggle to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors, along with their resolve to stand firm in an environment where there is a constant pressure or a constant temptation to bend the knee in conformity, right? Conformity in identity, conformity in worldview, conformity in allegiance and worship, But as we've seen in the first four chapters, Daniel and his friends have been unwilling to bend the knee, right? They've been unwilling to conform to the image of Babylon. In fact, we've seen each week that Daniel and his friends had predetermined, or as Pastor Bobby had said, they decided before they had to decide that they're not going to bend the knee. They will not worship a God other than Yahweh, right? He is king. He is Lord most high, and they would not bow. And so when Nebuchadnezzar asks Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, hey, uh, are you really willing to risk your lives to be thrown into the fire just because you don't want to bow down to this big image of me that I made? I mean, how easy would it be? You just, it don't have to make a big deal. You can, it'll be simple. You can be quiet, but just comply and bow down and worship this image. And you don't have to be thrown in the fire. And they responded, well, We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And so while we might uh, be encouraged and challenged by Daniel and his friends, really our interpretation and our application would be woefully misguided if we ignored the source of their confidence, right? Because the book of Daniel also tells us primarily, in fact, of God's faithfulness to preserve his people in the midst of exile. It tells of God's promise spoken of in Isaiah 47 to bring low the nation of Babylon. It tells of God's sovereignty in Daniel Daniel 2, to orchestrate and construct kingdoms and nations and then to bring them low in humility, all in step with his perfect will as he guides and directs human history in the formation of his everlasting kingdom. It tells of God's righteous judgment of sin and arrogance and pride and idolatry and blasphemy. It tells of his patience and his mercy and his grace towards those who repent. And so the heroes of the story, again, it's not Daniel, it's not Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, but the hero is God. Or Tim Mackey, when when talking about the book of Daniel, he says that really in the book of Daniel, we get uh, both a pattern and a promise. And so the pattern established in the book of Daniel is that human beings become beasts when they don't acknowledge God's kingdom. Right, And we saw that last week. Pastor Michael taught through Daniel 4 where Nebuchadnezzar is literally described in beastly terms, right? Beastly language when the Lord brings him low. And then the promise in the book of Daniel is that God will one day confront the beast and rescue his world. And so as we turn our attention to chapter 5, I think it's important that we allow ourselves to, um, to reread and to remember Nebuchadnezzar's final words in Daniel 4. And may these words penetrate our hearts and echo in our ears this morning. This is what Daniel 4.37 says. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right 
and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So that's the the end of Daniel chapter 4. Now here's where we are this morning in Daniel chapter 5. Look at verse 1. It says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. So okay, we end chapter 4. We've got Nebuchadnezzar being restored as king of Babylon and we begin chapter 5 and suddenly we meet King Belshazzar. That's a different person. So what's up with that, right? And so it's, it, it can be a bit disorienting. Here's some backdrop to what's going on in chapter 5. King Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 BC after reigning in Babylon for 43 years. Between then and this story in Daniel chapter 5, there's an estimated 23 to 25 years that have gone by. And in that time, Babylon has had three new kings. And in those short years, one of the kings was assassinated, another was ousted via coercion, and the current king, he's actually named Nabonidus, but he's not even reigning or fulfilling his role as the king of Babylon because, now the history is a little convoluted and I have to be honest, I was reading as much as I could and it made my head hurt this week, so I'm going to give you my best shot at it because what happened with King Nabonidus was he worshipped the, the Babylonian moon god named Sin. Whereas at that time, when he took reign or control of the throne in Babylon, the the king that was primarily worshipped was the god Marduk. And so uh, you've got this new king who's who's enacting religious reform. He's saying, hey, we're going to worship the moon god over Marduk. But then you've got the the clergy, the, the priests of Marduk in Babylon who are really disturbed by this religious reform. They don't like the king. He gets scared and he runs for the hills and leaves his son, Belshazzar, to reign in his place as like vice regent or as de facto king in Babylon. So this guy's actually number two in terms of the line of power. Now it's important, I think, to understand uh, a little bit of the history, though again, uh, that's about as much detail as I could give you without my head literally doing 360. Um, but, But it's important to understand that even now in Babylon, there is this growing instability political, religious, there is like the nation of Babylon is, in, is, is unstable and Belshazzar either knew it and didn't care to acknowledge it or he was unaware of the instability because he's throwing a party. And so again, chapter five, verse one, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. So There is some uncertainty here, though most seem to believe that this feast that he was holding was likely an annual religious holiday. It was a banquet uh, that would be thrown in Babylon by the king as a way to honor the the pantheon of Babylonian gods. And so uh, King Belshazzar, he's hosting this feast, but what's clear in the text right out of the gate is that he intends to be center stage which was uncommon, like it was uncommon for a king to feast among the multitudes in a setting like this, but we're told that he invites the, this, a thousand of his lords so that he can drink wine in front of them. We're actually told in verse two that there's also his wives and concubines involved. And so he's got a thousand lords, he's brought his wives, he's brought his concubines, and, and the wine is flowing and leading the, the charge, leading the debauchery is the king. Now, 
Lest we start to imagine this event as like an ordered, like, like an, an orderly event, like just a calm dinner party with a bunch of people, but they all seem to really know and enjoy each other's presence. That's not what's happening. This is more akin to an orgy. And I know that word can be shocking, but that's what it is. And so you've got uh, alcohol, wine that's abundant. You've got sexual immorality that is abundant. And again, leading the, the way in this moral bankruptcy is the king, drunk and haughty. So verse two, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, he commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought in that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. Now notice, it, this, these verses are really repetitious. There's a reason for that. Those are it's meant to emphasize what's happening, right? So where were these taken out of? From the house of God in Jerusalem. And then again, who's drinking? The king and his lords and his wives and his concubines, they drink from them. They drink wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And so in all of his self-importance, the king has, in his drunken stupor, he says, hey, bring in the gold and silver vessels which were taken from the temple when we ransacked Jerusalem. I want them brought in and I want them filled with my finest wine and I uh, and everybody here is gonna get to drink and drink and drink as a way to celebrate and proclaim our God's reign. There are none above them. There are none beside them, especially not the God of Israel. And so you can almost imagine songs of praise and shouts of acclamation erupting in the banquet hall as the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone were worshipped by the people of Babylon, all at the expense of Yahweh, the God of Israel. David Helm paints a really clear and disconcerting picture here. He says that we can imagine his voice rising from his seat at the high table. A toast, a toast to our gods, for as history has shown, no one can stand in our way. And with that Belshazzar, gold goblet in hand, his fingers clenched, as it were, around the God of Israel, decidedly throws back his head in delighted defiance. His neck is now stiff to the heavens as he drinks the wine. And the king was declaring to everyone that with his hand, he had a firm grip on God. He owned Yahweh. Dale Ralph Davis says of the king that he sang doxologies to non-gods that couldn't even hear the praise. And yet, there is a God who hears. And Paul says of him in six, Galatians 6, 7, that he will not be mocked. And so Belshazzar's open idolatry and his arrogant blasphemy provokes the God of Israel to respond. Look at verse five. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. I mean, is this not a scene from like Scooby-Doo? right, like the 90s Scooby-Doo? Like this is a cartoon, right? That's what it reads like. That's what I imagine in my head. 
But the king at the sight of this human hand which just shows up and starts writing on his wall is scared into sobriety. His, his face wider than like Chip and Joanna Gaines' uh, new bathroom tile or his eyes bigger than the, the moon god that his daddy taught him to worship. His mind just going bananas off the rails and his knees clapping and rattling as he shook in fear and terror and trembling as he should. Now the question is, what's he going to do? Like how is the king going to respond? On verses 7 through 9, we see that the king calls all the wise men of Babylon to come and, and explain what is going on. What is this hand? What is it writing? What does this mean? And unfortunately for the king, it was to no avail. He even offered them honor and wealth and power in the kingdom, but even his greatest bribe would prove insufficient for providing the phony prophets of Babylon the means required to interpret the Lord's revelation. So, as 1 Corinthians 3.19 teaches, the wisdom of the world is folly with God. Understanding here would require divine assistance. Assistance that the gods of Babylon were woefully incapable of providing. Now the sound of the going-ons in the banquet hall catches the attention of the queen mother. And so maybe your Bibles uh, translate it as queen, maybe they translate it as queen mother. Uh, likely this was Belshazzar's mom or perhaps even Nebuchadnezzar's wife. Um, but regardless, the queen mother enters the banquet hall and finds an anxious, drunken king just spinning off the rails. And what is her advice to this king? Go get Daniel. Go get Daniel. Daniel. See, the queen mother appears to remember Daniel, who at this point uh, in the narrative, he remains in the kingdom living out his days in obscurity. Daniel, who was brought as a teenager into Babylon, is likely in his 80s at this point. And she says of Daniel in verse 11 to the king that there is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. See, she recalls Daniel's relationship with Nebuchadnezzar and the favor that he found with the king as, as the one who's able to understand and interpret these dreams that Nebuchadnezzar was having, these dreams that even the wisest of Babylon could not figure out yet again, incapable. And so in desperation, Belshazzar appeals to Daniel. He sends for him. He comes in. In verse 13, it says that Daniel was brought in before the king and the king answered and said, you're that Daniel one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. Now I want you to notice how Belshazzar addresses Daniel. He's, he's addressing him, you might imagine, in a way that it's like this young king just feels indignant. Like this young king, to some degree, is repulsed by Daniel. He obviously thinks he's better than him, that his God is lesser than him, right? So, so you're Daniel, huh? the exile that's living in my land, eating our food, the one that Nebuchadnezzar brought here, the one who worships Yahweh. Have you seen his cup full of my wine? It holds it real well. It's a beautiful cup, isn't it? I almost imagine Belshazzar hiccuping and wobbling, drunk off the wine that he's drinking from Yahweh's vessels and before him standing Daniel, this composed 
man in his 80s who's seen kings come and go like the waves of the sea in Babylon, each with their own idols, but none so foolish as to degrade the name of God and his holy belongings. And so to summarize, Belshazzar says, hey, Daniel, I'm desperate. You're my final hope. I'm gonna give you honor. I'm gonna give you wealth. I'm gonna give you power. If you'll just solve this, make this go away so that I can kind of continue partying. I don't know what this hand is. I don't like it. What's going on? And Daniel says, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. Whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his, his dwelling with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And so Daniel says, uh, keep your gifts. I'm not interested. You can't buy me. You can't persuade me. You can't purchase me in any kind of way. You're not going to sway what I say by giving me a gold chain. It's not going to work. Nonetheless, I'll tell you what this means. The, it means that the most high God, the one who established Nebuchadnezzar as king over Babylon, the most high God was the one who made him great. And when his arrogance and his pride caused him to harden his heart towards the heavens, the same God, the most high God brought him low. That is until he repented. And yet again, the most high God restored the kingdom to him. Just a quick history lesson for you, young king. You must have forgotten. It wasn't that long ago. Verse 22, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Though you knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them and you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which don't see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. And so what is Daniel's indictment of Belshazzar? It's that you've, you've not only followed in the footsteps of Nebuchadnezzar, that you've gone where he wouldn't even go. Like you've sung and danced in honor of your idols, your, your false gods. You know that they can't hear you, right? They can't see you, right? But the God whom you've dishonored, he holds every single one of your breaths in the palm of his hand. And then verse 26, now I'm going to preface, I took Greek in college and I was bad at it. I never touched Hebrew. So if you know Hebrew and I say these words wrong, grace, okay? <laughs> I don't know if you're out there, but if you are, this is what Daniel says. Hear now 
what this God has to say. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, and Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So eerie words spoken by the prophet Daniel. And again, you have to wonder, okay, is the king gonna listen? What's he gonna do? Is his heart gonna be softened? Will he relent? Will he repent? It would seem according to the tone of the text that the king was unwilling to do so. And so Daniel interprets, here's what's happening. Thus saith the Lord and the king just grateful that the hand writing on the wall is gone, gives Daniel the purple robe and a gold chain and says, you're number three in the kingdom. Aren't you so stoked for that, Daniel? And then he presumably goes back to his party. And the narrative ends in verses 30 and 31. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. So here's what's interesting about this story. Historians have suggested that while Belshazzar was standing in for his absentee father king and while he was drinking his subjects under the table, at this very moment that this is happening, the Persians were actively working to lower the level of the Euphrates River by drawing off the water upstream, making it so they could actually just kind of walk into Babylon like just bypassing all of Babylon's formidable, otherwise formidable defenses. All while the king is just drinking himself to death. And so unaware and drunk and boasting in his own glory, Belshazzar is confronted with this devastating prophetic warning from the Lord that's delivered by Daniel. And rather than turning and repenting, uh, the king just kind of, he wants to go back to the party. Because surely Babylon the Great would never fall, right? Only that night to forfeit his kingdom and his life to Cyrus, the king of Persia, also known as Darius. And so for, there, there's a historical perspective to this, right? Historically speaking, Belshazzar's kingdom fell because Babylon was in distress and he couldn't handle the political power and the military crisis that's required from a strong king to lead in such tumultuous like times, right? But, but theologically, it was also his blatant idolatry and open blasphemy against the God of Israel. And so it's true that God is kind and merciful and gracious and patient. And as Romans 2, 4 says, his patience towards us, his forbearance is meant to lead us to repentance, which was not the case with the king. Now in terms of the book as a whole, Daniel chapter five is like a transitional chapter. It kind of reads like a, a strange interlude where it's like you got a new king and then he dies and you're kind of like, what, right? Like in terms of the, the structure of the book as a whole, it, it, it's an important chapter. 
though, especially in terms of God's uh, redemptive narrative, right? Not just in the book, but his redemptive narrative throughout human history. Because again, in Daniel chapter two, God speaks through Daniel of Babylon's ultimate demise. And he speaks of the transition of kings in Babylon and God's sovereign orchestration of all of that in order to establish his everlasting kingdom. And so Daniel five is essential in the unfolding of God's redemptive narrative. But as I personally spent time in the text this week, the, the Lord just would not let me look away from the undeniable and unavoidable reality of sin in the hearts of man. Like the prophet Jeremiah, interestingly enough, writing to the exiles in Babylon, he writes in Jeremiah 17, verses nine and 10, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Church, sin is like a disease, and when it's not dealt with, it grows and it spreads, and everything that it touches, it corrupts and distorts and it twists into a, a, like a prideful opposition to God. Like Belshazzar is a devastating example of this truth, right? Like this is, if you have your notes, this is the first main point. It's that sin turns us inward and it enslaves us to the belief that we are God of our own life. It, it traps us, it enslaves us. Again, there's some fill in the blanks if you have the handout, it's on the other side. But like this is what sin does does in the hearts of man, where we were created to know God and to enjoy God and to worship him as as creator, as sustainer, as provider. What sin does is it it twists our, our hearts so that instead of looking up, we look in. Like sin hardens the human heart towards the things of God. We see that in Belshazzar that his pride hardened his heart to such a degree that he would desecrate the gold and silver vessels taken from the temple. Again, don't forget, they've been sitting there for a long time. I don't know where there is, but in whatever storage place they're in, they've been sitting there for for like over 70 years. Every other king said, I'm not gonna touch that, but Belshazzar says, "Mm, I'll do it, I ain't scared. After all, we beat them. His heart became so hard that he would cross a line that no other king dared to cross. Sin also distorts the human mind to believe false stories of reality. Like Belshazzar openly blasphemes the name of God and worships his idols, which are mute and lifeless, over the God who alone created the very gold and silver that the cups were made from. Like this is his, his worldview is that these gods are real and stronger and better than every other God. And so his whole life is dictated by that. He celebrates his gods. And now to be clear, this happens today. Like, and not every idol is a literal statue that's in our home, in our kitchen, our bathroom, our car or whatever. I mean, what is an idol but a product of our own appetites? Like an idol is a God fabricated by our own desires and our own imagination whose sole function is to scratch every impulsive itch I have and then to affirm me and to validate me and to satisfy me. 
Like there's a pantheon of American idols, right? In the American imagination, there's sexuality, sexual identity, comfort, wealth, relationships, maybe our our career, our accomplishments, our self-image, our individual autonomy, the list could keep going, but when these things, when our idols become our God, they determine the direction of our life and they determine the way we see the world. They determine the way we weigh what's, what's good and bad and right and wrong. All of it is determined by what we love and worship. And so we begin to believe and live a false story of reality. Sin blinds our eyes towards the wonders and works of God. Like Belshazzar is hopelessly incapable of understanding and interpreting the writing on the wall. Literally, right? The writing on the wall. It's right there and he's incapable of seeing it and and understanding it. The same is true of all the wise men in Babylon. None None of them could make any sense of it. It's as if, it's as if, like Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 3, a veil covered their eyes, making them literally unable to understand and interpret God's revelation with their own resources. And then finally, sin deafens our ears towards the voice of God. Like after Daniel spoke to Belshazzar, revealing to him this, like, thus saith the Lord, here's the divine warning, here is the righteous judgment. Belshazzar dresses Daniel in purple and gold and just says, thank you so much for making that creepy hand go away. You want some drink? He totally misses it. And and here's the thing, if we're really honest with ourselves, we're more like Belshazzar than we care to ever admit, right? Like left to ourselves without the intervening work of God, we are prone to look inward and to revel in our own successes, our own riches. We're, we're prone to chase pleasure after pleasure after comfort and to worship the gift rather than the giver. And we deserve, we deserve because of our sin, judgment. Like we deserve because of our sin, the wrath of God. Like Daniel Aiken says, if we're honest, we would find that there's a Belshazzar lurking in all of our hearts. Or David Helm says it more explicitly, each one of us has not honored God as God, but traded him for what could be considered a wine of our own making. We have exchanged the most high for delights that are lesser, and as a result, we are all subject to Belshazzar's sin. We are found wanting and without God's sovereign mercy left to drink from his cup of wrath. So what captured me this week is just the devastating reality of sin in the human heart. But here's what else, here's the other thing that captured my attention and encouraged me this week as I studied. It was just the way that in the midst of all the debauchery and the pomp and the posturing and the idolatry, the immorality, the blasphemy, God shows up. He just kind of shows up, just kind of inserts himself into the situation and he, he graciously offers Belshazzar a warning, like graciously intervening. And, and yes, the king refused to listen, but, but God didn't owe him a warning. He didn't owe him that. And yet, what does he do? He has this hand show up and start writing on the wall, this warning of judgment. If he doesn't repent, this was God's patience put on full display with King Belshazzar. 
And this is what God does. This is who he is. He's gracious to intervene. He is gracious to warn. And he's gracious to wake us up from our slumber of sin and to call us to repentance. Like, like Belshazzar didn't listen and the wage of his sin was literally death. And it was the righteous judgment of God for his open rebellion and blasphemy. Because after all, sin must be dealt with. But here's the incredible news, church. The incredible news of the gospel is that sin was dealt with. It was dealt with on the cross by Jesus Christ for all who come to him in faith. And so the sins of any and all who come to Christ in sincere faith, believing in their heart of hearts that that God sent his one and only son, his beloved son, to live a life free of sin, to die on the cross as their substitute, and to rise on the third day. Anybody who believes that in their heart of hearts, their sins are paid for. Past sin, future sin, the wrath of God which was reserved for you poured out on Jesus Christ, and in turn, the grace and mercy of God poured out lavishly upon all who are in Christ by faith. Like one of my favorite things about my, my job, my specific role on staff here at Huddle Bible Church is that I, uh, I teach our membership class and I get to sit through most of the mem- like new member meetings and stuff. And so when I get to interview folks who are becoming members of the church, I just ask them, one of the questions is, hey, just share your story with me. I'd love to hear your story, as much detail, as little detail as you want, more is better, but you know, whatever. You just, whatever you want to include, I'd love to hear it. And Uh, What I love is that every single time I leave just so encouraged as I listen to these people who tell me the story of their life and they're like, it's like story after story. They're like, you know, I was doing life on my own terms. I was kind of doing my own thing. I wasn't really interested in the Lord. And then suddenly God just intervened. He just kind of broke through. Like I was talking to a lady this past week who actually, her, her, like she was like, you know, I thought I, was a, I thought I was a believer. I really wasn't. And one night I was literally laying on my couch listening to a song that had nothing to do with Jesus. And it was like the Holy Spirit just broke in and I started weeping. And I got on my knees and I prayed and I confessed my sin. I repented. I asked the Lord to forgive me. And I've been walking with him ever since. I was like, so what song was it? And she told me, and I didn't know because it was an old one. And I was like, that's not, it wasn't about, she was like, literally had nothing to do with Jesus at all. And the spirit of God just broke in. Story after story after story after story. I get to sit and hear people often through tears just saying, this is when God intervened and woke me up. Now what's also, what's also just amazing is that like the Bible is abundantly clear that for all who are in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Holy God, as the Queen Mother might have identified him as, right? And when the Spirit of God comes and indwells us, he fills us up, makes his home in us, and he begins to change us and transform us. Like, in each of these stories, I get to hear folks who are like, after they're like, this is when God broke through, they're like, and here's what he's been doing ever since by the power of the Holy Spirit. No, no one has ever said to me, uh, and I've been perfect ever since. I've never sinned again. It's amazing. Because if they did, I'd say, I, I don't know this is the right church for you, okay? Um, no, that's not, 
how, that's, they never say that. They're always like, man, this is just a story of God's grace and the power of the Spirit to transform me from one degree of glory to the next. And so, you know, yes, here's what sin does, but let me just, according to God's word, can I just, this is what the Holy Spirit does. Where sin hardens our hearts to the things of God, the Holy Spirit softens our hearts towards the things of God. The same spirit that filled up Daniel, that now lives in every follower of Jesus, that Holy Spirit, he softens our hearts towards the things of God so that what we once hated, we begin to love because the Spirit enables us to actually love the things of God and to actually love God himself. That's a work of the Spirit. Or where sin deafens our ears, the Holy Spirit gives us ears to hear the voice of God. Like Jesus says uh, in the Gospel of John that the sheep, that my sheep, they hear my voice and they know me. Well, that's a work of the Holy Spirit that you can hear the voice of God and obey and delight in it. Like, like you can hear God's voice and distinguish it between your own voice or the voice of uh, culture or even the voice of the enemy. That is a work of God and a gift of his grace. Where sin blinds our eyes, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see and to celebrate the works of God. Like I think so many people love the story of Saul in Acts chapter nine where he's blinded and then his eyes are literally scaly and then uh, the Lord removes those scales and Saul's like changed forever. He becomes Paul and writes like the majority of the New Testament. Like we relate to that story because so many of us are like, I get that. There was a moment where I didn't, I couldn't see Like I couldn't see reality for what it was. I couldn't see God for who he was. I didn't understand, but now I do. And then where sin distorts our minds, the Holy Spirit renews our minds to know what is true, good, and beautiful in the world. That's why Paul says in the book of Romans, Romans 12, that we ought not be uh, conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. And so what what set Daniel apart from the other wise men, it wasn't that he was more learned or studied or just had more practice dealing with floating hands that write things on the wall. Maybe he was, I don't know. But it was as the queen mother acknowledged he was filled with the spirit of a holy God. And the same spirit that filled and empowered Daniel now lives in every single follower of Jesus. And so so where sin has turned the hearts of men inward and enslaved us to the belief that we are God, the Holy Spirit sets us free to know and to worship and to enjoy and obey God rightly. And he does it through faith in Christ Jesus. And so we might all be like Belshazzar to some degree or another, but God sent his son Jesus to rescue us, to redeem us, to die for us so that our story need not end like Belshazzar. And so um, as I close, I'll just leave you with this. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, like you, you, you're sitting here and you know in your heart of hearts, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a follower of Jesus. Either you're on the fence, you're uninterested or, or you know, for whatever. You're just like, no, I just don't believe this. Let me just, you are even now sitting under the wrath of God. His wrath is being stored up for the final day and will be poured out upon you and I don't want that for you because he is patient Patient so that 
so that all would turn in repentance. And so maybe today is your writing on the wall moment. Turn and believe in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Come out from under the wrath of God and step into his grace, which he pours out lavishly today and tomorrow and for all eternity. And then for the believers in this room, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, I'll just, I want to read Paul's words in Romans 6, verses 1 through 4. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so uh, to, to my brothers and sisters in the room, you've received the Holy Spirit through your faith in Christ. A gift of God's grace is his spirit. And he enables you to now, like, turn from sin and, and walk Walk in obedience to Jesus. Walk with Christ according to his words. Listen, your sins may be covered, past, present, future, your, your place secure with God and Christ in paradise, but, but sin still robs us of the abundant life Christ came to offer you today. And so be quick to repent because sin dulls our spiritual senses, but it is the grace of God and the work of the Spirit to renew and enliven those senses when we repent and walk with Jesus according to his word. And so our story doesn't have to end like Belshazzar's, and we, may we, church, profit this morning from the Lord's patience with us. And may we profit from the grace that he extends to us through Jesus Christ, his beloved son. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy, for your patience, for your grace. Thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were his enemies, he came to redeem us, to rescue us, to transfer us out from under your wrath to transfer us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved son, God. I pray for those in this room this morning, Lord, who do not know you, that they would repent, that they would turn from their sin, they would would turn from trying to do life on their own terms and instead would receive your grace and mercy by placing their faith in your son, what he's done for them in his life, death, and resurrection. And for those of us, Lord, who have known you, help us to walk with you. Help us to repent of our sin regularly and to walk according to the power and the freedom that you've given us in your son, by your spirit, God. So we love you, Lord. Thank you once again for your grace and for your mercy. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.